It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni with Jeremy Kate. October is LGBTQ History Month, and our guest on this week's podcast is someone with a pretty good grasp of that history, as well as where we stand today. Dr. Jaylene Galarza is Associate Professor of Social Work and the co-chair of Shippensburg University's LGBTQ Plus Concerns Committee. She's also a member of the Board of Directors for the LGBT Center of Central Pennsylvania, among many other roles. Her research and practice is firmly rooted in her passion for sexuality, social justice, and we're glad to have her here with us today. Thank you for coming on the show, Dr. Galarza. Thanks for having me. So I want to start out with talking about what... LGBTQ History Month means to you? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, this month really means quite a lot for me on a personal and a professional level, actually. I'm sure. On the personal level, I have been out as a queer person of color um, for, I was calculating this the other day, I think 17, 18 years. So it's been quite some time in my own journey and coming out process. And so for me, LGBTQ plus History Month is not just October, it's Every day right. of the year, 365 <laughs> days of the year. And so it's very personal to me um, professionally as well because I've pretty much dedicated my whole life, uh, my work, to supporting the efforts towards equity, equality, and inclusion. And so I think this month really helps us to highlight some of the challenges but also the resiliency of our communities. And so... That takes you back to what, about 2001 when you came out? Yeah, 2001, yeah. And so how did it go for you? How did it go for me? Actually, pretty decent, I think. Uh, in terms, coming out for for folks who aren't as familiar is an ongoing process. So mm-hmm. you never just come out one time. And so the first layer for me uh, were, was a couple of friends at school not necessarily on purpose, kind of by accident coming mm-hmm. out. Uh, that went okay, and then came out to my mother, and that went really well. She's super supportive. She always has been. And I, I would say compared to many folks in our communities, I think I had a pretty good experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have any mentors or people you looked up to? So... Interestingly enough, what I what I had was I grew well where I did high school at that time um, was Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and there wasn't a lot of support, but there was a new youth group, LGBT youth group that's actually still around. It had only been around for like a year at that point, and there was a teacher at my high school who connected me with that youth group. She would volunteer facilitating that. Mm -hmm. It was at a Unitarian Universalist church. And that was really great in terms of supporting me in my process, that youth group. Besides that, I didn't know a lot of queer folks. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't have a lot of people to look up to except for what I could... um, 
kind of get my hands on in terms of media at that time. There was not a lot of social media presence. So music, musicians. Um, yeah, so that was my main kind of modeling that I had. Mm -hmm. And so now, having gone through that experience and working with young people, uh, what are you seeing? What, what's going on out there? What are the concerns the fears? How are you taking, how are you kind of paying it forward, you might yeah, say? Yeah, So... I think the concerns and fears, unfortunately, are very similar. Mm, uh, not much has changed. Um, we've seen big changes overall, of course. Everyone points to uh, marriage equality, right? That's definitely something that at that point in time, I was like, oh, that, that'll never happen. I didn't even think that was... That happened the year I got married. I didn't even think it was going to happen. <laughs> um, and, you know, so... People point to that as like a sign that, oh, things have really shifted. And I think in some ways, yes, we're seeing more visibility. Yes, we're seeing um, people becoming more intentional and centering these conversations and these experiences and identities. Yet other ways, fundamentally, there hasn't been as, as many changes. The school system, education system, what's um, provided for folks in terms of um, in the curriculum and visibility around LGBTQ rights and the movement itself, key figures in those movements. People don't talk about that in school, really, very rarely. Mm -hmm. um, what is available in the schools for youth um, to support their exploration of identity. Um, I think we're starting to see schools embrace more um, youth groups, uh, student groups to support that. But that's still lacking in many areas, depending on where you're at. Um, so that kind of support. For our trans and non-binary youth, there are real struggles, especially in terms of inclusivity in space, not just in school, but in other places, of course, as well. So I think... We're seeing some of the same challenges play out. Homelessness um, among youth who are rejected by family, um, you know, issues with accessing employment, the lack of protections related to that, and uh, other kinds of accommodations. So there are real, real issues that are still. Sure. Well, yeah. it's kind of the macro and the micro. It is. Yeah, we had a black president, but there's still racism. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that doesn't cure right, right, right. those institutional things that are impacting our communities. On on the campus, though, the young people you're working with, um, do you feel like even, let's say, the, the straight community, do you feel like there's more acceptance there or is there still kind of a stagnation? In terms of on campus, mm -hmm. like what yeah, I'm seeing on, at the college the level? I think that there is a movement towards acceptance and inclusivity. I really do. Um, we have a pride center now on campus, which makes me really excited and something I'm very proud of. Is that brand new? That's very new. Okay. This is its second year and it's the oh, first it's year that the new. center has a director. Okay. So an actual full-time staff person. So they're actually paying somebody. They're, means they're actually it paying someone, right, which means something. If you're mm -hmm. going to put money to, you know, and back it up, that really shows your commitment towards it. Mm -hmm. So I actually think that there's movement towards that. I've always been embraced at the university, uh, which it was something I was unsure would happen, especially coming from a more urban area to a more rural environment. And you came here from Philadelphia? Yeah, that's okay. where I did my graduate studies. So you were a little nervous about coming out to the farmland. Oh, totally. 
Totally. I was like, what am I signing up for? <laughs> um, yeah, it was definitely a fear. But then when you got here, you felt, uh, at least on campus, you were accepted and yeah. included. Yeah, I have mm-hmm. a really great department. Um, I'm a social worker, and I landed in a department with folks who um, are just as passionate about these issues as I am, and were really supportive of my own passions. You don't always get that in social work. There's a kind of a mis, uh, I, I don't know, kind of a misunderstanding that all social workers are on the same page with these issues, but even in our profession, they're not. Always. Well, you're, you're people. You're yeah. going to have the same mix right. of people. Right. Let's talk about some of the work you're doing. Uh, discuss some of the, the issues that are important to you. So on campus, um, I a lot of the work that I do with our committee is focused on really creating more inclusive space on campus. Um, some of the projects that we've taken on um, include um, developing and instituting a preferred name policy on campus, which we were successful with and now have. Um, we are working on advocating for more inclusive bathrooms on campus because most bathrooms on our campus right now are very binary. The building I'm in, for example, just has male, female on every floor, and that is not accept, you know, accessible to all communities of folks. It doesn't always feel safe. Um, to use a bathroom. So that's a big issue that we're pushing forward. Um, Inclusive housing on campus as well is another thing that we're trying to push for. And then just in general, increasing awareness and education, Mm -hmm. um, which is a continuous thing that has to be done. Let's talk about the pronouns. I noticed Mm -hmm. in your email signature something I'd never seen before. Yeah. You indicated your preferred pronouns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, what what is kind of the pronoun situation? I, I don't know how else to frame it, really, but... Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I do that as a way to extend um, to others the opportunity for them to share their pronouns. Mm-hmm. It's an inclusive practice, really. Um misgendering and mispronouning folks is an act of violence. And so it has very significant impacts on trans and non-binary communities. So when you say that's an act of violence, what I'm hearing is it's an intentional act to not recognize how you want to be identified. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think that definitely mistakes happen and there are ways to rectify that if it does. It does not, though, minimize the impact of what happened, right? And I am not completely, you know, perfect with that either. There have been moments where I have misgendered and mispronounced someone. And so, but it is incumbent on me as a cisgender person, meaning non-trans person, um, to do the work in order to create more inclusive spaces. And I'm trying to do my part. And so by sharing my pronouns, my hope is to be able to do that. Right. It kind of opens up the dialogue. Yeah. What's your right. preferred pronoun? Right. And if you are a trans or non-binary person and you see this cisgender person modeling that, it might signal to you, hey, maybe this person gets it. Maybe they're safe. 
You may or may not still choose to share with me, but at least it gives you a little bit of an indication that, right, this could be potentially a safe person in a safe space. Now, that's an interesting concept, looking at the world for safe people and safe places. Yeah. So that's basically kind of having to read the yeah. map of humanity before you. Yep. Let's talk about that a little. I mean, yeah. how does that how does that work? I mean, I'm, you know, just cisgender, I guess, is the term. Yes. So I just flow through society. It's kind of effortless. Yeah. How does that work for someone who's maybe coming out or mm-hmm. kind of more on the cusp and not sure what to do? Yeah, so I think most folks in the LGBTQ plus communities read or scan space for safety, uh, whether that is related to gender or sexual orientation. Most people are looking for signs that tell them that hey, this is a place where I can be me. And I even do that. I did that when I was coming here for my interview um, at SHIP, meaning for, for my job. And, you know, the first thing I did was look on the website, see what I could see, see what I could learn, which wasn't much at the time, unfortunately. Um, and then during the interview process itself, I was like constantly looking for things like as simple as like a rainbow or a safe zone sticker, something that's telling me like, okay, these people might get it. The way that they asked questions, the way that they talked to me. And then for me, I put little things out there to see how people respond. So I use the term partner versus, right, husband or wife. Um, And so you can tell a lot when you use that term yeah. and how people receive that. So you're, all, you're watching people's body yeah. language and oh, facial totally. expressions. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I'm a clinician by training, so then I'm always tuning in to people's nonverbals. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a big piece of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What does inclusivity look like at its end goal? You know, I think, I, actually, I think it's equity, and inclusion, right? It's mm-hmm. not only having a seat at the table, but it's also being affirmed in your in in terms of what you have to say and and, and what you want to share, right? And not just being dismissed and pushed aside. I think tokenism happens a lot <laughs> in place of true inclusion and equity. People say, okay, we've got our queer person. We've got mm-hmm. our trans non-binary person. We're good, right? And that's not inclusion um, or equity. So to me, it really is a deeper, more meaningful commitment. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about your family and their acceptance and the cultural acceptance that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, what, where, what, where's your home country or where your family came from? I'm sorry, that's probably what, how I should be asking it. <laughs> Tripping all over this question, sorry. Uh, so, so I was born in the U.S., but my family and our um, kind of ethnic culture is Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. So most of my family was born and raised in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my father, who still lives in Puerto Rico, and uh, my mom was born in New York, but raised most of her childhood in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in terms of acceptance, right, I think 
It really is a subjective experience, right? We can't ever fully generalize that all Latinx uh, cultures are homophobic, heterocentric, and transphobic. But that there are some real deep-rooted elements of that mm-hmm. in our culture. It's not something that is always readily accepted. Mm-hmm. That has its roots, though, in colonialism in terms of what Catholicism brought to many of those countries that right. were originally indigenous, right? And had different ideas around sexuality and gender, which was more fluid. Mm-hmm. So there, there is that reality. Um, there are definitely um, ways in which in Puerto Rican culture where trans and non-binary and queer folks are not as accepted um, and people experience deep-seated homophobia and transphobia. I was really lucky in the sense with my mother um, because she raised us majority of my childhood on her own um, that she is not that way. Right. Mm -hmm. She kind of challenged that herself and modeled for us something different. Whereas in some, you know, parts of our culture, people hold these values that really don't. And so I got really lucky (laughs) in that. And I I did. And I think other uh, spaces, other cultures, other countries, people fare worse than others. For sure. Yeah. For sure. There's huge differences. Yeah. So a part of what you're involved in, um, non-discrimination policies mm-hmm. uh, directed uh, for LGBTQ people. Let's talk about that a little. What's some yeah. of your work in that area? And then we can discuss the Supreme Court case. Yeah. So... I'm really lucky that Shippensburg University itself has, in their non-discrimination policy, uh, protections for LGBTQ plus communities. I think the language could be a little bit stronger, but it's there. So I'm really lucky for that. What does it say? What protections does it offer? Um, so it offers language in um, in general in terms of sexual orientation is part of that. Gender, I think if we specifically say trans and non-binary but i'm not sure when that was drafted so the language probably wasn't there for that um does sexual orientation not cover those no because they're different sexual orientation is different from gender so um right now what we see though is some of the protections that many trans and non-binary folks have that has been linked to sex-based discrimination, right? And like protections against that. Mm-hmm. Yet that's not even fully accurate. And we're seeing that being contested um, in many ways. In the state of Pennsylvania, there are very little 
to none. <laughs> uh, There's yeah, no statewide yeah. protections, no. but there are specific counties, counties that will have some, right. I, you know, or some municipalities. Protection. Yeah, or municipalities. or municipalities. But not chambers. Not chambers. No. <laughs> and what we actually later this month on October 22nd at the Capitol, uh, the PA Commission for LGBTQ Affairs is actually holding a rally and lobbying day event for folks to come and lobby for more comprehensive non-discrimination mm-hmm. uh, legislation because mm-hmm. we don't it, have any. It really needs to happen at the state level. Oh, it's yeah. hard to make it incumbent on the community. Yes, it, it needs yes. to happen at the federal level. Well, yeah. well, <laughs> well ideal. Otherwise, you're going to have the hodgepodge of laws that won't protect these individuals as they travel or of move. Course. Yeah. Of course. It needs to happen at both those levels, right? Pennsylvania and at the federal. Um, and with pen- when you have this like piecemealing of non-discrimination, it doesn't like work. if I go in this county, right. all right, cool, I'm good, I'm protected if someone fires me or they deny me housing or whatever. But if I then go to this other county where it doesn't, that's problematic. I'm safe at Shippensburg University, but if I step off campus... Yeah, in Shippensburg Township. It, right. That's not necessarily the same. Mm-hmm. So it's a real problem in Pennsylvania and in other states as well. Um, and it creates a lot of issues, a lot of fears mm-hmm. that are very real for folks. For people that don't know, what are some of the discriminations that happen? So I've mentioned a couple, right? Employment is a big one. Um, It's perfectly legal for someone to fire you if there is no non-discrimination policy in place based on sexual orientation and identity and and gender. Um, And so that's a real, real issue uh, that folks face. There's also discrimination that happens in terms of housing, Mm-hmm. which is another big one um, where folks are denied housing. They won't get callbacks for housing or be um, evicted once found out. That's another big piece. There's also uh, discrimination related to d- denial of services, right? Sure. So like what we've seen, so, so-called religious freedom laws that allow, you know, certain folks to say, you know, if I'm a pharmacist, I'm not going to give you your testosterone or your estrogen, right? Because I don't believe in that. And what always gets me about those laws, when they say freedom or liberty, they do the exact opposite every single time. I'm going to restrict you, actually. So in light of that, we do have this uh, major Supreme Court case coming up. Uh, Tell us what you know about that, Lil, and I can fill in information. Yeah, so this is, um, it's a really big case. Um, involving or has implications in terms of uh, trans and non-binary folks especially mm-hmm. and permitting more discrimination. The case is called Zarda, the two cases, Zarda and Botstock. Uh, Donald Zarda and Gerald Bostock, gay men who alleged they were fired because of their sexual orientation, Versus Harris Funeral Homes involves Amy Stevens, a trans woman who was fired by a boss who claims that he would, quote, violate God's commands if he allowed Stevens to deny her sex while acting as a representative of the organization. So it's very specifically directed at, in this case, a trans person. Yeah, and and implications for the whole community at large, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. 
It uh, actually is contingent upon, this is, I think, pretty interesting, Title VII of the Civil Rights right. Act of 1964, which prohibits gender stereotyping. Yeah. Which now, in, in our modern times, will include these plaintiffs. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's very interesting. We'll see what the court has to say. Right. But if they uh, go the way they tend to go, um, this could be a bad day. This, this will be a major bad day. It will have... Uh, really significant uh, repercussions uh, for LGBTQ plus communities in general. Like I said, you know, in terms of if, we, if we're taking like the state of Pennsylvania, where many counties don't have these non-discrimination policies in place, <clears throat> some places you can kind of fall on this like Title VII as something that you can potentially litigate mm-hmm. um, if you are fired or you know denied access to to needed services and and file that under discrimination using Title VII, which you know ACLU or you know uh, National Center for Transgender Equality right um, give you know visibility to. And so if this happens then, because they're interpreting it to not include trans and non-binary folks and communities, um, then there are real-life implications for that. Oh, definitely. This will be on-the-ground implications. If I could, if I Mm -hmm. could just read a very short analysis that I think explains this nicely. The analysis in Harris Funeral Homes, the case involving a trans woman, is even more straightforward. Think about the case from the employer's perspective. The employer believes that Amy Stevens is a man and that Stevens is forbidden to deny her true sex. To keep her job, Stevens must comply with her boss's understanding of how a man should dress and act. But this same boss would not require a female employee to dress like a man and to comply with male gender norms. The boss's rule is that men must dress and act one way and women must dress and act a different way, and that is sex discrimination. Mm -hmm. That's the crux of the argument. Mm-hmm. That will hopefully prevail uh, in court. We'll see. Um, yeah. With the way the court's gone these days, you can kind of almost we can call it, and none of us have a law degree. Yeah, which yeah. is unfortunate. It's you know, it speaks to this. Um, well, obviously, transphobia and this idea that um, trans women are not women and trans men are not men or those who don't exist within the binary are 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 not as valid or are less than and this invisibility that exists um and this assumption that there is just two ways of being and expressing who you are Mm -hmm. which is just ludicrous right it really is and wasn't always this way and yet we've come to this point in time where we are just so rigid in our thinking and understanding um, when in reality if we were more fluid we would see that most folks they just want to exist that is right. literally all they want to do. I think this happens when you don't have direct interaction with people in the, in that situation, with trans people, with gay sure. people. When you can look at, when you can see them from an abstract distance, you can put all kinds of things on them. Sure. But after you meet them and you realize that's a fully formed human being, yeah. if you don't change, 
then there's something not quite right. Well, yeah. Then there's some real deep-seated yeah, stuff you. happening. You're, oh, yeah. But I do think that, you know, what we're looking at, and I don't want to overly dr- dramatize it, but to some people, you're upending a social order that they depend on. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when you come with these new things and these changes, it's mm-hmm. frightening. Yeah. And I'm like, let's live in the chaos. <laughs> F social order. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, that's, 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 my, that's my thought, sure. right? Um, to me, you know, I think there's beauty in not just diversity, right? Like, and not in a cliche way, but there's that's a, not a that's not a bad cliche, n- though. No, it's not a bad cliche. But there, there's a beauty in this, and in, in seeing that there are multiple ways to exist and to express. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we could let go, we would see so much more um, kind of happening in our world, right? Mm-hmm. How do we get through to people? who uh, might consider themselves accepting of the trans community, but, mm-hmm. and, but they don't necessarily see the problem. They don't see, why do people need special exceptions or oh, special uh, yeah. you know, laws to protect them? Uh, well, that's, that's something ju- you run into. Like when we, did, when we did the thing with the borough to try and uh, get the borough to uh, do a protective law. In and it wasn't even an enforceable thing. It was more kind of just... Just, just to like say to we say did it, it and we're, yeah. we're with you. It you seems know? like one of the biggest hurdles is getting people to understand that there is a problem. Like yeah. they may think that they're open-minded, but they yeah. don't accept that there's a problem. Yeah, that's a that's a big issue, right? Um, uh, people who are like, I'm on board, but right? Why do you need this? Yeah. And the reality is, is Again, painting the the full picture because the world that we live in is not just. It just isn't right now. And making it clear the implications when you don't have that. So, for example, at our university, one of the big pieces we're trying to move forward is with the inclusive bathrooms, right? And I would say everyone is on board. They're very supportive. Um... And I am pushing for the fact that we need a statement at minimum that says, when you come onto this campus, you are free to use whatever bathroom you want to use. And there is resistance sometimes to that. And I think it's similar. Well, why do we need that specific language out there? Isn't, I mean, you know, we should... We know, people know that they can, but that's not true mm-hmm. because our realities, people's realities is rooted in something different. And I think sometimes the way to get through is to share those stories, to really um, amplify the experiences of those who that is not the case. Right. Yeah, it has to be humanized fully in order for people like on the borough council or wherever to understand that this is a real issue, not just a group looking for a special exemption or a carve out or what have you. And I I really struggle with people's resistance to that anyways, because to me, I'm like, you know, great. We should be accommodating and giving special, um, you know, exceptions to certain groups. Because and how does it hurt you if we do that? How does it hurt <laughs> you if you already have yeah. privilege yeah. that is inherent that nothing's going to be taken away from you? Well, to play devil's advocate here for a minute, 
Uh-oh. The city of Portland. Uh, <laughs> oh, Portland. Just, yeah, Portland. Uh, <laughs> always way ahead of the curve, maybe in good ways and bad ways. Uh, they just eliminated all urinals. And so now their bathrooms are for both men and women. Yeah. And this, to the article I read, brought up some concerns of women, mm-hmm. of being in those spaces with men. Sure. And so, you know, I don't know if this is a good solution or a bad solution. I don't know. But, you know, that's something I hadn't really thought of. And now that you think of it, you know, a woman might not feel safe going into a bathroom with men. Sure. So what what does an ideal situation look like? And, uh, you know, how would it work? So I think all oppression is related and intersects with each other, right? And so I think there are some real valid concerns that, people have in terms of safety and past traumas that they might have experienced. Um, I don't think that that's a legitimate excuse then to exclude folks from using bathrooms. And I'm just saying in general, when we have binary bathrooms and folks are like, you know, a trans, you know, woman can't come and use a women's bathroom because I feel... I don't feel safe when in reality what they're saying is a trans woman is not a woman, which she is. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, include the more inclusive spaces that we can provide the better. I think what we're talking about here is a big culture shift Mm -hmm. that is probably going to take a long time for folks to get used to and actually align with those values. One of the things that we're talking about on campus is in terms of that same issue to help kind of address that is, okay, can we offer, and because reality is in certain fields, in certain departments, the majority of folks in those spaces are women. So can we have an option for women Uh, stalls or bathroom and also gender inclusive bathrooms Mm -hmm. on the same floor Um, and in a way to help offer a space for folks where you know maybe using a bathroom with cisgender men because those are the folks who are most often the ones perpetrating such violence against women um, can have that space as well I again, I think we're talking about real cultural, deep rooted changes that have we to are. happen before people can start to. Because to eliminate that problem, we have to l- eliminate toxic masculinity, white supremacy, right? We have to okay, your, eliminate. Your, your laundry these, list is getting big. Right. We have to eliminate really big issues so women feel safe to use the bathroom in general. Right. So that's a big shift that has to happen. So moving on to another topic, if we could. Uh, This is a thorny one, but the intersection of religion Mm -hmm. and religiosity and uh, the LGBTQ rights movement. I feel like this is where there's the most friction. Sure. Um, In your study and in your work, I mean, is there a dialogue that you're trying to create to kind of bridge these bridge this gap or how does it work? Sure. So I think in some of our uh, communities, this is a real issue that and a real challenge. Um, There are definitely 
uh, folks and uh, on the concerns committee as well. But also uh, one of the other hats I wear is co-chair of um, the Council on Social Work Education's Council on Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity, and Expression. Please tell me there's an acronym I for know, that. CSOG. <laughs> we were, it's called CSOG. We, we were going to put that in the intro. I took that It's out. a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> CSOG. But why I bring that up is because a couple of the members on that group, they have really took it upon themselves to try to help bridge those gaps, especially in terms of how do we help folks align um, and make more inclusive space um, and understanding with within very religious communities Mm -hmm. because the reality is you know just because someone um, is lgbtq plus does not mean that they are not or cannot be religious as well right and so i think there's lots of folks trying to make those movements there's definitely talk at our among our committees on campus around how do we start to facilitate conversations with the local community Mm -hmm. again making this humanistic right person-centered hear our stories um yeah trying to make that shift and change Mm -hmm. I think if that can be opened up, uh, I think a lot could change more quickly. Sure. I also wanted to say that I have uh, a daughter in high school right now, and from the conversations we have around the dinner table, her generation, as far as her group and most people she knows, they've made the they've made the leap. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of like once they mature and you know come into positions of power, I think the real change will have happened already. Yeah, I I think it's definitely generational. Hate is learned. It is not inherent. I think uh, if we find ways to intervene earlier, uh, sooner, I'm also a sex educator by training too. And so um, I'm a huge proponent of bringing these topics and ideas, the the younger, the better, Mm -hmm. um, to talk with young young kids around what it means to be lgbtq plus that it's not a scary thing it's not a scary topic Mm -hmm. um and so if we can do that sooner then that helps embed that message and counters what they might be hearing from older generations or more conservative generations at home Mm -hmm. and in the community all right well that's all the time we have for our show today. I really want to thank you for coming on yeah. and uh, doing all your good work. It was great. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Dr. Galarza. I appreciate and, it. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Find us online at progresspod.org.